Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 123 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Uh, going old school today, since I don't have my laptop, very unprepared, so got the paper in You're front prepared. of me. You're prepared, you just, you have paper. Yes, yeah. Uh, For those watching on YouTube. Sto- <laughs> stolen by by Nigel, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we love Nigel. I uh, got a lot of good stuff today, Matt. Um, IRS came out with some important numbers for people to pay attention to for 2022. So we're going to get into that yeah. here in a little bit. Yeah. But uh, as always, we'll t- take the first few minutes to discuss performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And this data is as of the market close on November 10th. And the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 0.9% for the month and up 23.7% for the year. The Dow up 0.7% for the month and up 17.85% for the year. The NASDAQ up 1.86% for the month and up 23.2% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 4.08% for the month and up 21% for the year. Big move. Big move. We'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.23% for the month and 8.4% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently sitting at 0.05%. The two-year Treasury yield is sitting at 0.52%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.57%. So obviously, Matt, the biggest... um, mover so far in the month of October has been small caps. And what we saw is what we like to call a breakout in the small cap ETF. IWM is the ticker symbol. Correct. And what I mean by that is, you know, right after, you know, the lows of 2020, you know, small caps had a significant run up. I mean, they like off of their lows, they were up like 170 or 190 percent or something like that. And they got hit worse than the large cap index during the COVID sell off. Yes. Yes. And from February of this year, small caps pretty much have gone nowhere, Nowhere. meaning that they just traded sideways in what we like to call a range. So just back and forth between, you know, certain price levels. And finally, we got a breakout above those price levels or those highs uh, that are not now, small caps, the IWM ETF specifically, is at an all-time high, which I view as very bullish going forward. That's not bearish. That's not bearish, number one. Um, but yeah, so, you know, that was that was a really big development, I think. And, you know, it's been something that a lot of people have been watching over the past several months because... Um, you know, it, it kind of got to the point where it was a coiled spring, right? Oh, yeah. Where it just, you know, this range just kept getting smaller and smaller and it was going to break one way or another up or down. Yes. Um, and it broke up, which is, you know, pretty optimistic for the rest of the year, I would say. Love it. Um, moving on to big news headlines, current events from the week. Um, the October jobs report came out and the U.S. economy added Uh, 531,000 jobs in October. The jobless rate fell to 4.6% as labor market uh, bounced back from a summer lull. 
And this was the largest gain in jobs uh, in the past three months. Great data point. Love to see it. And that's exactly what we need, in my opinion, to start getting the supply chains back to normal. Biggest bottleneck you hear from employers, lack of, of labor. This is a positive. Yeah, very positive. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, like I mentioned before, was the IRS came out with some important numbers for 2022. These I think are important. people should pay attention to. Uh, number one, the estate gift tax exemption was increased to $12 million $60,000 uh, per person and the annual gift tax exclusion also gets bumped up to $16,000 per person. So can you just explain that a little more on, on what those actually are? Yeah, yeah, people? that's great, Mark. So on the estate gift, ta gift tax exemption listeners, it means that you are able to pass on to the next generation up to $12 million, uh, $12 million, 60000 without the federal estate tax kicking in, which right. is about 45% or right. so. Right. It's okay. not low. <laughs> Every dollar above that is taxed at roughly 45%. Now, you are able, during your lifetime, I could give you, Mark, I could give you a check for $50,000, mm -hmm. and you would not have to pay tax on that. However, you would have to file, out, file a form with the IRS that since I gave you over 16000 mm -hmm. which is next year's annual gift tax exclusion amount, I have to inform the IRS because it lowers that lifetime exemption, which, again, has been raised to $12,060,000. Right. So if I gave you 50000 I would have to note that I did that to lower my lifetime exemption. Right. Okay? I think it's a mis- perception that if you give someone more than 16,000, either you or the recipient is going to be taxed. That is false. Mm -hmm. It's just that it lowers your lifetime gift exemption. Right. Okay. Okay. What you want to give me that 50,000 now or later? I'll give it to you now. <laughs> uh, the 401k deferral limit increased from 19,500 uh, per person to 20,500. So we got uh, an increase of about $1,000 of what people can contribute to their 401ks. Love that. It's great. And so, you know, listeners, when I see this type of stuff, you got to remember that highly comped people tend to max out their 401k in the first quarter of the new year. Mm -hmm. So when you think of flows into the market, think of people right now who are highly comped who can't contribute to their 401ks. Mm -hmm. Boom. January 1 comes. You have a lot of fresh capital coming into the market. That's why the first quarter is not a bad quarter for the markets either. And you start saying an extra thousand dollars across all those highly comp people. That's that's not bearish. Yeah. Yeah. There's a second time. Um, so and then the, there was no change in the catch up deferral limit, Matt. So that stayed at sixty five hundred. So people that are over the age of 50 can contribute now twenty seven thousand dollars to their 401k, including the catch up. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, the defined contribution plan maximum uh, contributions increased from 58000 to $61,000. Um, and for those who may not be familiar with that term, defined contribution plans are just like profit sharing plans, 401k plans. They have a max limit of total contributions from employee and employer. Including profit sharings. Yeah. Right. Yep. So um, so that has been increased to 61,000 total contributions. From 58. From 58. 
IRA and Roth IRA max contributions stay at $6,000 per year for those under the age of 50 and uh, stay at $7,000 per year for those over the age of 50. Uh, and the standard deduction uh, goes to $25,900 for married filing joint. And for single filers, uh, standard deduction goes to 12950 I think that's great for people. They don't have to worry about itemizing, you know, married yeah, filing it just makes jointly, it, it makes things 000. a lot cleaner. Oh, yeah. It makes, your, makes filing so much easier. Right. Um, and then last but not least, the highly compensated uh, employee compensation limit increases uh, from $130,000 to $135,000. So where that comes into play, Matt, for a lot of people is highly compensated employees are limited to how much they can contribute to like their 401k, right? Correct. So if you're someone that makes over $135,000, you might not necessarily be able to, you know, uh, max out, I guess, your 401k. Yeah, there's formulas listeners that um, these plans have to file with the IRS to make sure that they don't discriminate against lower comped people and they don't mm -hmm. just benefit the, the ones that are making more money. Mm -hmm. And there are ways listeners that employers can get around this. Um, and so one of the ways is to have something called a safe harbor provision, which says, for example, that, you know, you'll give 3% of compensation to everybody in the company, um, no matter if they contribute or not. not. And so there's ways around it. And I love the fact that they have those provisions mm -hmm. because I've seen so many companies adopt this to where, you know, the employee historically has never contributed to the 401k. Now they're getting 3% from the company. They're starting to see the positive momentum of of what that three percent has grown to and all of a sudden it's like well i'm gonna put in three percent and right. it is i've seen that be such a positive domino effect mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm glad that companies do that yeah no it's awesome um so those are some of the um major numbers um they also came out with uh updated tax brackets for 2022 um but people can just go ahead and google that stuff and figure out what that is it's not huge changes but there are a little Some bit tweaks. of tweaks with tweaks. inflation um next we'll jump into articles research and tweets from the week um the first that i had matt was a article written by jeff hirsch titled the year's best three-month span about to start oh um, so he says November, December, and January uh, constitute the year's seasonally strongest three-month period for the S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrials, and the NASDAQ Composite. Calendar working in our favor now. It is. The November through January three-month span has produced a gain of 4.3% for the S&P 500 and Dow Jones since 1949. Since 1971, the NASDAQ has gained a whopping 6.3% for November through January, with December through February in second at 5%, and October through December at third at 4.4%. Mm. So, mm. you know, I think Doing the numbers, I know the numbers are there that, you know, there is data behind what we call this Santa Claus rally into year end. Absolutely. Um, it's just a strong period of the markets for stocks. So again, going back to it, I know we've had a strong year in the major indices. That doesn't mean that we can't continue it into year end. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to pull back in the markets. Correct. So 
thought that was interesting. Love it. Uh, the next thing, switching gears a little bit, uh, was an article written by Michael Townsend on Charles Schwab's website titled Congress Drops Most Individual Tax Increases in Revised Economic Package. So if you remember, Matt, a couple of months ago, the House came out with a new economic package that had several changes to uh, retirement plans, um, to the tax code. And a lot of that stuff that was initially announced is not in the bill anymore, like we predicted, right? So when this stuff comes out, there's usually several iterations and several revisions until a bill gets passed. Mm -hmm. And some of the key components of the first bill proposed by the House, you know, are already out of the next bill. So I just want to go through some of those things to update listeners on that. No, because I did get a lot of feedback from that that podcast where you did preview what was in the initial yeah and i and like i'm kind of on both sides of the fence with that i kind of look back and i'm like maybe we shouldn't even talked about it because it it does get people nervous for what could potentially happen um but i think it's good to stay informed on what could be coming down the pike yeah yeah um so the first was the individual income tax rates the house bill proposed increasing the top rate from 37 percent to 39.6 percent for individuals making over $400,000 in income, but that proposal was dropped from the new bill. So that is out. Okay. The surtax on wealthy individuals, however, is in. A 5% surtax would apply to individuals with income over $10 million. An additional 3% surtax would apply to income over $25 million. Uh, capital gains. The House bill proposed a new top rate on capital gains and dividends of 25% for individuals with more than 400000 in income, but that proposal was dropped from the compromise bill. So capital gains tax increase is out. Uh, estate taxes. The House bill would have dropped the amount of inherited assets exempt from the estate tax from the current level of 11.7% which now it was raised to a little over 12 million to about 6 million. But that proposal was also dropped from the new compromise bill. So God. the decrease in the uh, amount that's exempt from estate taxes is out of the bill. That's great. Okay. Um, next, Roth IRA conversions. Uh, the House bill would have prohibited Roth IRA conversions for both traditional IRAs and employer-sponsored plans for taxpayers with incomes above 400000 but that proposal was dropped from the new plan, so no limits on Roth conversions. Corporate tax rate. The House bill proposed a new top corporate tax rate of 26.5%. That was replaced in the new bill with a 15% minimum tax to ensure that no corporations can use loopholes and incentives in the tax code to pay a lower rate. The cap on aggregate retirement account balances. So the House bill proposed that individuals with more than $10 million in tax-advantaged retirement accounts would be required to take required minimum distributions regardless of their age. That proposal was also dropped from the new plan. Roth conversion limits also out. The House bill would have prohibited Roth IRA conversions for wealthier taxpayers beginning in 2032, but that provision was dropped from the most recent bill. Uh, billionaires tax on unrealized gains is out. There is an idea floated in the Senate to levy an annual tax on unrealized gains for individuals with $1 billion plus in assets, but that plan did not attract enough support and was scrapped. 
Um, so again, there could be more t changes to this stuff, but that's where things stand as of right now. So again, a lot of what I would call the sticker shock items that were in that initial house bill have been dropped because, you know, they lacked a lot of support. So, and rightfully so, in my opinion. Right, right. Um, last thing I had, Matt, was an article in the Wall Street Journal by J.J. McCorvey titled, Have a Job with Benefits, How to Make the Most Out of Open Enrollment. Um, and this was something that I just wanted to touch on really quick, Matt, um, just because we are in the open enrollment period right now for most uh, companies. So I think it's something that people should be paying attention to. And I think a lot of times people overlook open enrollment and don't spend enough time on Agreed. electing their benefits and Agreed. they're reaching at, or they're losing out on free money sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so JJ just pointed out a few things that I wanted to share. And he says, first, do a cost comparison. For medical insurance, many providers will link to an expense calculator to help members choose the right plan. If you started a new med medication or expect to make more primary care visits in the next year, use the calculator to see if a lower deductible plan makes sense. Employees with partners and spouses who work outside of the company should also compare benefits to see which is best for their household. Additionally, compare the price of your company's benefit with what you're paying and getting elsewhere. For example, more employer benefit packages are incorporating pet insurance according to the Society for Human Resource Management. Our and firm it, is even considering that down the road. We are. And it might be cheaper than what your current policy offers. So would your horse be considered a pet, Jenna? I really hope so. <laughs> she said she really <laughs> hopes so. Um, next is pull your benefits into your budget. To choose the benefits that will yield the most financial returns, consider reviewing your employer's option alongside your own budget. That way you might create some slack around light items that are creating the most pressure. For example, if you review the past few months that your expenditures and notice that the cost of childcare has crept up, you might check to see if your employer offers new dependent care flexible spending accounts or an FSA. This would effectively save you money by allowing to pay that bill with pre-tax dollars. Um, find opportunities for long-term savings. Employers offer HSAs to workers, back on the HSA conversation, who pay into high-deductible health plans to help pay for medical expenses. According to SHRM, nearly 60% of companies surveyed offer HSAs, up from 50% in 2016, and 40% offer contributions alongside their employees. And Matt, a lot of companies, you know, match a significant amount of money or they're just going to automatically contribute a certain amount of money to your HSA. And again, if you're not utilizing it and you're in a high deductible health plan, you're missing out on free money. Absolutely. Listeners are getting two financial planning topics, it feels like, this week. I know. You have one in the middle. I know. It was I got, one. I thought about leaving it out for another time, but I wanted to get this in while people were still in open enrollment. It's juicy. Um, so again, the government has raised the cap for 2022 contributions slightly, uh, $3,650 for individual coverage and $7,300 for family coverage. And these accounts have many tax incentives that we've talked about before. Uh, and if you want to hear more details on my rant on HSAs, check out the financial planning topic of the week on episode number 122. Um, Interesting uh, with what's going on with flex spending account contributions, Matt. So mm -hmm. usually if we're in a normal environment, typically you can't roll over the balance of your FSA to the next year. Correct, sir. However, if companies opt into it 
employees are allowed to uh, roll over the balance of their FSAs because of COVID. Uh, that's wonderful. So, um, so the government did make changes to us assist people um, during the pandemic. Um, so if your company company opted into it, which you have to check because companies aren't required to opt into that, mm -hmm. uh, you will be eligible to roll over your balances in your FSA, but definitely check with your employer to see if they opted into that benefit. Great. Uh, last but not least, invest your benefit savings. Employees could use open enrollment to bump up their contribution to the 401k account or check whether their company has changed its match policy. There may be new investing options as well. So again, just a really good time that if you're already in there and making changes to your benefit, increase that 401k by one or 2%. Extremely timely. Love it. Thank yeah. you, Mark. Uh, turn it over to you. All right. Um, I have two, over here. two items this week. Uh, my second one has two points, so technically three, but I'm going to go right into it, listeners. First piece of research I have that I'd like to discuss is from Mr. Thomas. He's the head of research at Top Down Charts mm -hmm. uh, down in New Zealand. He had an interesting piece of research about the percentage of equities within client portfolios. This piece of research, Mark, is from uh, Bank of America Global Investment uh, Research. Okay. This is what it says. Now, um, before I say this, will you remind listeners how they could see this chart if they want to view it? Yeah. So on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or LinkedIn or Facebook uh, at Jessup Wealth Management. Thank you, Mark. So I'll read first what it says. Quote, a new all-time high for the S&P 500 last week and a new all-time high for B of A's private client allocations to equities. Part of this will just be the market drifting allocations higher i.e. performance driven rather than active allocation decisions. But I always point out with this sort of thing that even just standing by and letting the market decide your allocations for you is effectively an active decision because you could rebalance and reduce your exposure. So on this chart mark, it shows that equity allocations um, within B of A private client reached a bottom uh, during the uh, early 09 when it got down to 39%. So the average client only had 39% stock exposure when the market was at a bottom. Okay. Okay. Right now, uh, it peaked uh, before in uh, March of 2015 at 62.5%. And now it's at another high watermark. It's at 65.5%. So roughly. The average private client at B of A, two-thirds of the portfolio is in stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, first off, Mark, please explain to listeners what it means to rebalance their portfolio. Yeah. <clears throat> so a lot of people uh, manage their investment portfolios based on a allocation weighting percentage, meaning you know, uh, for a certain level of risk, for example, a popular allocation is 60% stocks or equity and 40% bonds or cash. And that has been a very popular allocation over the past 20 years that we've discussed a couple times on the podcast in the past few episodes. So people can check that out if they want to hear more on the 60-40 portfolio and if it's dead or not. Yep. But you have that target allocation to keep your risk levels in check, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a really good year in the markets, let's say your equity allocation, you know, it increases to 68% or 70% throughout the year. At the end of the year, you could rebalance or sell some of your equity exposure to get back to that target allocation 
of 60% equities and 40% bonds. Um, and it goes to both ways. So if you have a down year in the markets and your equity allocation dips down to 50%, you can rebalance at the end of the year, at the end of the quarter or semi-annually to get that target allocation back up to 60%. So essentially that's what rebalancing is. Love it. And so again, over time, since historically equities outperform bonds, again, over long periods of time, listeners, Considering a rebalance to keep your allocations in risk in check is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing we do as a firm is we have discretion on a majority of our clients' accounts, and we actively do that on behalf of clients. But mm -hmm. if you have self-directed accounts, this is something I think you should pay attention to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Second item here. This is my second point. And listeners, this is an important one. Not taking action is making a decision. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, the other thing that sticks out to me here, again, I feel like I catch myself saying this all the time on this podcast, but, you know, with yields as low as they are, again, this is another thing that makes sense to me that, you know, equity allocations are on their high end looking back at the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um People need to find a way to generate returns, and they're just not getting it in fixed income right now. So where else are you going to go? Yeah, I mean, if you need to supplement your retirement income with investment income, you can't do it with 100% bond portfolio. No. So um, again, something that's not surprising to me, but um, you know, I definitely think rebalancing is something that most people should consider. Um, especially if you're very risk averse. Um, so, you know, this is a good piece. Wanted to highlight it. Okay. The second piece I'd like to share with you listeners is a blog post by Brad McMillan. He is the chief investment officer of Commonwealth, uh, financial network. We've had Brad on as a guest of our podcast. Um, was it a year ago, Jenna? I think it was a year yeah. ago. It was during COVID. I think he was a guest. So he had two pieces in his blog post, Mark, from October 29th, okay? Section one has to do with semiconductor, okay? Title of the portion of the blog said, semiconductor shortages easing, question mark. And this is what he said. Economic growth last quarter was down significantly and came in well below expectations. This was largely due to slowdowns in the auto sector as shortages of semiconductors forced manufacturers to cut production. Taking sales down from an annualized rate of almost 19 million for the year before September to, to below 13 million in September. Bad news, certainly. But the interesting news here is that two major manufacturers, and the first one I think is a European uh, company. Can you pronounce this for me? Stellaris. Stellaris and Volkswagen see the situation improving and expect chip supplies to ease by year end. Even Ford on its earnings call noted that there were, quote, significant increases, end quote, in semiconductor availability for the second, uh, from the second to the third quarter. A necessary prerequisite to things getting better is that they have to stop getting worse. And that seems to be the case in this very important area. So again, that's good for the economy. Think of all the auto suppliers it affects down the system. Secondly, you know, who is this bad for potentially, Mark? used car prices. Mm -hmm. So why are used car prices as high as they are? The big thing is people can't get a supply of a new car. Right. So if you're sitting on some used cars and you're thinking, hey, they're going to prices are going to go higher, they very well could, 
but this is a data point that could maybe change your thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope this stuff is, is moderating, but it's just funny to <clears throat> see how this is all coming together that, you know, at the peak of this supply chain issue, you know, when we talked about it was major thing on the Barron's front page, seems like things have been getting better since that point. It so, feels that way. Yeah. It feels that way. Okay. Second thing he had in his blog post, which caught my attention, it's the title is inflation moderating. Now, yesterday we had some inflation data that was still relatively hot, mm -hmm. but I'm going to read what, what, um, what Brad had here. Okay. Mm -hmm. He says, if you take the above into consideration, you would expect inflation to be topping out as some sectors start to improve, but remain high as many sectors continue to suffer. And this is exactly what we're seeing. The monthly personal consumption expenditures core deflator number came in consistent with expectations. While it was above last month's number, last month's was revised down. On a quarterly basis, this inflation measure was down from 6.1% to 4.5, a meaningful decline. Other measures are also showing improvement. Just as, just as with supply issues, with which it is directly tied, inflation has to stop getting worse before it gets better. Here, too, there are signs that is starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Now, we did get some hot inflation data yesterday. I'm still in this camp that I feel supply chains and inflation, in my opinion, is still tied to employment. It's the biggest bottleneck that companies have. And I think it's the biggest reason you're seeing prices go up. I mean, we could take uh, we were talking last night about the price of of turkeys coming up for the Thanksgiving season mm -hmm. and the prices are going to be up significantly from last year. Well, the, the client I was talking to uh, knows there's a turkey processor up in northern Ohio and the biggest problem they have is labor and the amount of money they have to pay for the labor is through the roof. Hence, that gets passed on to the consumer. And I think that once you start to see people go back to work, employment normalizing, you're going to see these gains in inflation stop. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not insinuating that we're going to retract and go back to prices pre-COVID very quickly. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But the gains at this rate, the concerns by the market of a runaway inflation continuing month after month, quarter after quarter, I am still not in that camp. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to, to point out. Yeah, and I want to be very clear about something is that, in my opinion, we needed some sort of inflation after COVID or else we would have been in some pretty dark times. I Stagnation? Think, yeah, people and people don't understand the risks of a, of a massive deflationary environment. Yeah, why are you going to put money to work when it just gets going to get cheaper? Right. So... So I want to be very clear about that, that I think it's a good thing that we did get some inflation. But I think the key point going forward is that we get, you know, a deceleration in inflation over the next couple of quarters. Exactly. We the, need to the see the acceleration growth. would not be good. But, yeah. you know, that's something that we want to say or excuse me, like you said, uh, see moderate and decelerate over the next couple of quarters. And that's something that, again, I think the market is climbing a wall of worry to see if that's going to happen or not. Love climbing a wall of worry. Secondly, I still stand by this, Mark. The key is employment. Mm -hmm. That's the key. Okay. Yep. That's why so I watch those numbers. I want to so continue closely. to see these job numbers come in strong. I want to see people go back to work. Yep. I want to see it. Okay, Mark, I'm going to transition to the financial planning topic of the week. This one's going like to be a little on the other side of this one. Yeah. What do you think? It's like, like the it. third time or second time. Mm -hmm. 
All right, buddy. Now, this is not going to be a long financial planning topic of the week, but an important one. Mm -hmm. There was an article on CNBC titled Backdoor Roth, a tax strategy favored by the rich survives in the Democrats latest plan. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on this, this article was from November 1st. Um, It goes to say the House Ways and Means Committee passed a measure in September to kill the backdoor in mega backdoor Roth individual retirement account or IRA. These strategies allow wealthy Americans to funnel more money into Roths. So before I dive and the main meat of this is, Mark, you educate our listeners on what is a backdoor Roth contribution strategy. What is it? How does it work? It's the bulk of what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, so a backdoor Roth IRA strategy is um, typically with your 401k plan, you know, once you max out your pre-tax contributions, you're still able to make after-tax contributions to your pre-tax 401k. And the strategy there is that because those are after-tax once per year, you can roll those contributions over to your Roth IRA, and it's a conversion. It's not a contribution, so you can get around the income limitations if you make too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. So it's a way for people to get after-tax money into a tax-free vehicle where it's no longer going to be taxed again in their life. That's right. That's right. And so you know, the other area, which is interesting, it allows people to who make too much money where they are, they're phased out for personal Roth contributions. They can make a contribution uh, after tax and non-deductible to their pre-tax IRA, to their traditional IRA, pre-tax IRA, and immediately the next day convert that to a Roth. Mm-hmm. And guess what? You didn't make any money. Right. You didn't take the deduction. So you just made yourself a Roth contribution. Yeah. And that's one thing that I, I want people to be really careful about, though, too, Matt, because if you have an IRA that has pre-tax contributions and non-deductible after-tax contributions, there's a calculation that you can run to determine how much of that is going to be taxable to you. Because the pre-tax money yep. that leaves and goes into the Roth IRA, that is going to get taxed. So people can't, if they think they can only move the non-deductible contributions, you can't. That's right. So so this is if you a, just don't have it a balance and you're just starting off per se. Right. Yeah. So if you have zero balance in your any of your IRAs, because for this calculation, they combine all of your IRAs together. Correct. Um, if you don't have any pre-tax money in there, you're good. This you is don't how have to worry about that, tax consequences. That's the strategy. But if you do have... Uh, deductible pre-tax contributions in an IRA, you have to be really careful. It's more proportional. It's not really going to work. Right. Perfect. That's the big financial planning topic of the week. I know it's a real short one this week, but I just wanted to highlight the the backdoor Roth is still something that's a possibility. Still alive and well. Still alive and well. And, you know, where this really comes into play is, you know, listeners, Mark, that maybe feel they're a little bit behind in their retirement savings. Maybe they haven't started an IRA. Mm -hmm. And let's say, you know, they're in their early 50s. You know, and they're like, I got to start socking some money away. I don't have an IRA. Mm-hmm. This is a strategy. And if you make over 140000 and you're single, this is a way to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that there's a misconception that you can only contribute, you know, up to, well, this year it's 19500 As we talked about next year, it's going to be 20500 into your 401k. But that's like the pre-tax contributions. You can make 
after-tax contributions to your 401k to get closer to that limit of total contributions in your 401k of employee and employer. And keep in mind that after-tax contributions to your pre-tax 401k are different than Roth contributions to your 401k. Very different. Very different. Keep that in mind. So last point, the limit for married couples filing jointly for Roth IRAs income limit is two hundred and eight thousand mm-hmm. is what the article said. So I wanted to throw that out there too. Yep. Okay. So um, and again, it's not a big deal if I mean if you're over the income limit and let's say you maxed out your Roth IRA, you can take those contributions out and fix it. So it's just a little bit of a hassle, but yeah, there's ways to make that right. Yeah. Back to so. you. I don't think I have anything else, so we'll uh, we'll leave it here for the week, and we'll be back with you next week for episode number 124, so thanks for tuning in, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.